Big Money Music Hour is presented by Les Bourgeois Vineyards, now offering canned versions of their Captain's Coolers. Featuring Bonfire Berry and Citrus Cruise, canned Captain's Coolers are available in six packs via curbside pickup or online at MissouriWine.com. Hello and welcome back to the Big Money Music Hour presented by Les Bourgeois Vineyards. I'm your host, Colin Laveau, the shameless voice playing what's relevant in music from the country of the Midwest and beyond. And this week, my guest is none other than Lucy Dacus. She is an indie rock goddess whose hypnotic voice and heartfelt poetic lyrics have left this host in tears on many occasions. And I cannot express how thankful I am to have you on the Big Money Music Hour. Thanks for joining us, Lucy. Yeah, thanks for having me. What an intro. Dang. <laughs> well, uh, I meant every word of it. Uh, you have really touched me on an, a very intrinsic level with your music and your lyrics, and I can't wait to dive into uh, some of the particular songs and, and music that has has touched me in recent years. But with almost every single guest that I have on the show, I start off with a very basic question because so much of what I know about any musician, whether I... I know them on a personal level or not is kind of ancillary. It's I know what I know you from 2016 and after whenever you started releasing music. But for every musician, there is a beginning to their musical journey. And I want to know about the beginning of your musical journey. What led you to want to make music in the first place? I feel like it wasn't really an option. Like it was just happening as soon as I was born because my mom's a pianist and um, both my parents played in like the church band and so I was always like singing um, but I guess you probably are asking about like my own music and I feel like I started it out of spite <laughs> like my first love went to college and started dating a poet and I was like I can do that like I can write poetry or like I can be a creative elusive person not for anyone else just like I to prove it to myself I you know it was just part of getting over that first love um and so I just started writing songs and I'd written songs before then too just with friends I was like the friend that had an acoustic guitar and we'd write songs for like our crushes and stuff at sleepovers um but when it comes to like songs that I would say like are by me and that I would share with people eventually that was the beginning and it started with just close friends and then my close friends would make me play them for their friends and then eventually like local bands asked me to open for them and it was sort of a word of mouth you know just kind of community building exercise so this was back in your virginia days right because you're you're from virginia originally yeah yeah i still live in richmond oh really awesome Awesome. Sticking with the roots. That's great. So when did you pick up guitar? When, when did that start? Because it sounds like you, you were, you were singing in choirs and stuff in, in your, your youth. But I mean, whenever you pick up a guitar, that's a pretty pivotal moment. So I went to like a winter Christian kids camp, I think when I was like 11 or 12. And my camp counselor had an acoustic guitar and she was so cool. At this point, I can say I totally had a crush on her. Um, at that point, I still loved God too much to say that I had crushes on girls. <laughs> but um, she 
had an acoustic guitar and played like Hey Ya acoustic cover, like the Outcast song. And I thought she was <laughs> so cool. And so I went home and bought like a hundred dollar three quarter Ibanez acoustic guitar from Craigslist. And yeah, started teaching myself chords from the internet. So you're just self-taught you just, you just picked it up on, on your own terms. Yeah. I've never taken a music class of any kind other than my mom trying to teach me piano when I was like six. And I was like telling her no, like she'd be like, this is a C and I'd be like, no, it's not. And she'd be like, well, I'm an adult and you're a baby. So I'm definitely right. And I have no patience for you. (laughs) That's great though, because I definitely think that particularly when it comes to rock and roll, there's definitely, you know, two different types of people. There's, there's the folks that, really you know hammer down on the music theory side of stuff and are able to do amazing things and then there's also a very there's some of the best rock and roll bands came from very archaic understandings of what music was and is and I had some vocal training myself like I was in choirs and stuff and I was able to read music as it pertained to choral arrangements but I was pretty much just like you and I just, you know, learn, learn, the, learn some bar chords and, you know, just whenever you come at it from this uh, very, I don't want to say simplistic, but basic uh, level, I think that uh, it definitely allows you to stretch some other creative muscles, you know, in terms of your uh, just overall uh, creative sense and, and um, ingenuity when it comes to, to songwriting. And uh, I, I, that's that's cool that that you kind of come from the same same background and school of thought. Yeah, I I still don't think of myself really as a musician because I know so little. I often don't know what chords I'm playing. Like I just find the sound on each string and I use like an open tuning um, just because it's really easy Um, but I do care about like songs and writing like I think I'm a songwriter but I I feel really dumb when I'm like I'm a musician because I know almost nothing about actual music. Obviously the whole angle of the Big Money Music Hour is music but I, I read that you went to school for filmmaking and that intrigued me because I'm, I'm somewhat of a cinephile myself and I, I wanted to go to film school when I was younger. And, you know, the, the biggest thing that kept me from doing that was the fact that all the best uh, film schools were just ridiculously expensive. There was no way that I could get into them. Um, but what, what motivated you and where did that interest in filmmaking come from? I just really loved movies and I used to watch like two a day and like look up lists like best movies of all time and just like work down and watch all of them. Um, And so when I went to school, I was just applying to different art schools. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do because I did photography and sculpture um, and I just liked all of it. And so I ended up going to VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, just because I got like a scholarship to go there and I could afford it. Um, And it's a really good school. Shout out to them, kind of. Actually, I take it back because they took away my scholarship the second year without any reason why. And um, so, yeah, I dropped out because I couldn't pay for it. And uh, yeah, I, I think what drew me to film, though, is that it contains like every type of art. Like, it's visual, it's tech, it's like 
got sound, like music is a part of it. Um, performance is a big part of it. Writing is a part of it. It like involves every creative aspect. And I liked all of them and I basically just didn't want to choose. Um, but yeah, I, f I felt like I was really like disenchanted with film after I dropped out of school and I hadn't, I haven't been watching many movies since then until recently I've been picking up again in quarantine. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of miss being more of a cinephile. I've, I've forgotten a lot of what I knew then. Like it was really my passion and it's weird how like now that music is my job, I cleared a lot of the brain space for film and filled it with music stuff. Well, thank goodness for that. But I, I before we move on from this topic, I'm I'm just curious from one cinephile to another, what, what were some of your biggest, I always ask people like, which you know, what's an influence musically, but what, what are some of the filmmakers that really speak to you? I really like Enya Varda and Fellini. Both of them have done autobiographical films and I'm a sucker for autobiography in film and in general. Um, I don't know who else. Uh, I really liked Terrence Malick for a while, but I honestly wonder if that was just like a teenage, like, wow, this guy's so deep moment um yeah Bong Joon-ho is making great movies and is an incredible actor. Marina July is also a huge inspiration basically about everything she does like books and random art projects and I think she's just like a purely creative person that isn't pigeonholed into one thing and that alone is a very inspiring life path would you ever consider uh, doing music for a film if someone approached you? Like, wouldn't has that some ever crossed your mind and writing music for for a film? Yeah, I would absolutely do that. It sounds like so much fun, and I love assignments. I feel like I'm still like a nerd. Like I miss homework, um, so that would be really fun. I don't know. Yeah, if movies are being made <laughs> right now, everything's like on hold. But uh, yeah. Yeah, whenever movies get made again, uh, hopefully, I'd I'd love to to see Lucy Dacus's name on the credits. I also love like the when directors and musicians have relationships. Like, I just watched Wings of Desire and like Vim Vendors um, had Nick Cave in that movie, and also had David Byrne in a different movie of his, and they were really like integral to both those movies and. We watched Night on Earth last night by um, Jim Jarmusch. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Tom Waits did the score for that and is in another of his movies. And I think that that's such a cool relationship to, like, collaborate with someone who has a different field than you and, like, get a lot of creative inspiration from that. Yeah, you bring up Jim Jarmusch, and he totally has uh, this kind of admiration that you see for for musicians and bringing them into his movies like Iggy Pop has been in a lot of his his films over the years and you talk about Nick Cave and Nick Cave is also a filmmaker in his own right he's made some really fantastic films that he not only directs and writes but scores and there is this uh, bridged I feel definitely between uh, filmmakers and musicians that is is very uh, tangible <clears throat> and you know I, I have a friend who's a, a absolute genius musician I've, I've had him on the show his, his name's Jack Yu 
and he uh, he posted on social media. It's like, well, I think it's officially not cool to be a musician anymore. What am I going to do? And it started this whole conversation. And there was one comment that I I saw that I thought was <laughs> pretty relevant because he says, "Man, everyone is trying to chase musician cool. Even people like that have huge success as movie stars, like." Johnny Depp and Hugh Jackman, you know, they, they, they all, you know, try to angle to grasp onto the uh, capability of, of being a musician, because even, no matter how cool they think they are in their own mind, there is this kind of other, <laughs> other level that, that they're reaching for. And I think that there's just this general uh, reflexive uh respect between whether it be like comedians or musicians or filmmakers where you know everyone picks their silo with which they choose to be uh, creative but whenever they uh, they they can have that that extra level of of respect because they know how much work it takes to be creative in a successful realm uh, in another medium. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's really fun to see such artists like Nick Cave and Jim Jarmusch rope in such colorful characters like, like Iggy Pop and, and others to, to their projects and, and, and see it on the forefront and on the screen. Yeah, I'd agree. It had to be a crazy time for you in your life whenever you started releasing music on on matador and you're probably touring in a time whenever people could actually go out and tour and play music for people walk me through that time of your life and what was the what did you learn from this period of your career it was a really great time so i want to say that before i say that what i learned was that people just want to make money off of you (laughs) like the incredible thing was that people heard what I wrote and I didn't even have that as a goal when I made the record. The record was a little project Jacob Blizzard went to Oberlin. Um, he needed to do like a project and asked if I had enough song. And um, yeah, so I didn't know anyone was gonna hear it. It was incredible that it, it sort of, the scope widened beyond what I thought it was going but in different labels and different managers and different agents and different just aspects of the music industry it was so clear that people were only trying to get to know me because they wanted to make money off of me like some of them I'm sure didn't even listen to the songs and they were just responding to a level of hype and I think there are a ton of music nerds in the music industry that actually love music and try to work on things that they enjoy. But I think that a lot of people, it's just their job and they are trying to see what works and what's going to be profitable. And so, and there's a lot of people who will make you think that they're the first type of person, but they're actually the second type of person. And um, I don't know, it was maybe a little hurtful realizing that people were fronting so much and the people that I'm actually still friends with I'm happy that I got to know during that time period but a lot of people fell to the wayside after I wasn't gonna like make them money (laughs) I'd imagine that whole process it's it's just a matter of determining the friends from the fakers 
at the end of the day, the people that are going to have your back but, yeah, but as opposed to the people that are just in it for themselves as opposed to your best interests. Yeah, and it's okay. Like, not everybody needs to be enthusiastic and, like, especially if you own it, that it's just your job. Like, I, I think that it can just be a job. Um, not everybody has to be extremely invested. I just imagine that's, like, that would make your life more enjoyable if you actually like your job or if you actually cared about the art that you were promoting or a part of. It seems essential to me, but I don't want to judge people that like it's not essential to them. Flash forward a couple of years. You also released uh, an EP with the also incomparable Phoebe Bridgers and Julian Baker. And I'm curious, how did you all cross paths? This was under the moniker boy genius and another amazing album you guys in terms of how your vocals blend together not only coupled with your collective songwriting prowess but how your harmonies work together it almost sounds like blood harmonies like you're related and how how did that all come about how how did you meet those two and and talk a little bit about how uh, working on that project what that was like for you so i opened for julian in dc around when her first record came out before mine came out and we clicked like immediately we were just like talking about books and did like a secret handshake within like 15 minutes of knowing each other and Phoebe also opened for Julian and Julian and I had like an email correspondence back and forth and she told me like you have to listen to Phoebe that girl's gonna pop off like she's incredible her songs are so good so I knew Phoebe's music before I met Phoebe and then Phoebe and Julian were gonna go on tour in 2018 and they asked me to open for that tour. And so we're like, well, if we're all gonna be on the road together, let's, you know, do a cover as the encore. And they're like, well, let's write an original for the encore. And then we got together in LA and ended up writing six songs and making a whole EP and a whole band. Like it was a big surprise to us. Um, and we had to get it done really quick. We recorded in June. And I think the first song came out in August. So we had to like make all of the art, mix it, master it, make sure Matador was cool to put it out like super speedily. Um, whereas with me, I've waited like an entire year or more before putting out all of, between recording and putting out all of my records. Um, and that's like a pace that I'm familiar with, like waiting a really long time. Uh, but yeah, I think that sometimes it's hard to explain how friendships coalesce. And I, I feel like it was just a really special uh, meeting of the minds. And we still talk all the time. And yeah, I think even more than the band or the music, we're just friends. Big Money Music Hour is presented by Les Bourgeois Vineyards located in Rocheport, Missouri. Les Bourgeois has been a mid-Missouri winery for more than three decades with over 20 different wines ranging in style and sweetness. Les Bourgeois Vineyard wines are available at your local retailer and online at MissouriWine.com. Support also comes from Mount Nebo Inn and Guide Service located across from Meriwether Cafe and the Katy Trail in Rocheport, Missouri. 
Mount Nebo Inn offers lodging, a space for events, and boat-guided wine tours of the Missouri River. For more information, visit mountneboinn.com. Support also comes from Ozark Mountain Biscuit Company, offering southern-style sandwiches from their food truck and take-and-bake buttermilk biscuits in the freezer section of Columbia-area Hy-Vee's, Clover's, and The Root Cellar. More information at ozarkmountainbiscuits.com. And finally, the Big Money Music Hour is presented by Burr Oak Brewing Company. Located just 10 minutes from downtown Columbia, east on I-70, Burr Oak Brewing Company has a 15,000-square-foot space that makes social distancing while drinking a beer and having a pizza very much possible. For more information, visit burroakbeer.com. Our guest this week on the Big Money Music Hour is Lucy Dacus. So we've gone through a pretty good chunk of story from your musical beginnings to film school to getting signed to your super group. It all is leading up to what I think is an exemplary album. I think it's one of the best albums, seriously, from the last 10 years. I mean that with every ounce of my being. Historian came out in 2018, and honestly, Lucy, this is the time around the time I tuned into you because I, I wasn't hip enough to to be on the Lucy uh, train whenever you came out in 2016. But I, I listened to Historian, and from the moment I heard Night Shift, I I was hooked, and I, I dug into to the album. I listened to it on countless occasions, and I'm I'm not gonna lie, not not every artist out there can emote on a level that you have with me personally. It's really rare to uh, have an artist that not only is creating really beautiful music, but also such heartfelt and poetic. I'm going to say poetic, and I I don't use that when I talk about lyrics often, because I I think that there are two different things. I, I think that, you know, you have the lyrics for a song, whether it be pop or rock, that, you know, can be really clever and, and fun. And I, I love clever and fun lyrics. You talk about, hey, yeah, like those are those are some great lyrics. But whenever it elevates it to the point of, of poetry, I think that you're reaching beyond the didactic. And what is really impressive for me personally, whenever I, I take in what you have to say, is the fact that it's very everything's very vulnerable and it's seemingly very interpersonal but at the same time there's it's not so didactic that it, you one person could extrapolate any specific meaning or story from it i feel like a lot of people can approach your music and i i know i do i I approach your music and even though this is a story about you there are moments in my life that that i i can apply to my own life and uh historian is just a magnificent effort and i just want to say that and i want to commend you on on one of my favorite records from the last 10 years but in particular i want to uh, talk about the song pillar of truth uh, so Pillar of Truth it was about your, your grandmother, correct? Can you tell me a little bit about that song? 
Yeah, that's about my grandma on my dad's side who passed away when I was in high school. Um, also, thank you for saying all that nice stuff. Um, <laughs> it was nice. And yeah, so Pillar of Truth, I wrote when we were visiting her in Canton, Mississippi, which is where my dad grew up. Uh, she knew that she only had a short time to live. And so everyone from her life gathered around her, like all her kids. She had five kids that moved to different places. Some stayed there, but everyone was there with their families. She has tons of grandkids and even great grandkids. And it was nice for everyone to be there for her. She had a stroke, so she couldn't speak at the end of her life, um, or she would attempt to form sentences and she couldn't. But just to be in front of her and show ourselves to her was such a like beautiful experience. And it made me appreciate her in a whole new way because she was a really quiet woman. She was always serving her kids and um, taking care of those around her. And to basically show her in her last moments, here are all of us and all of us are here because we love you and you loved us. And here's evidence of your love that's gonna live past you. Um, yeah, being a part of that was really profound. It was the first time I got to, you know, really be with someone in their final moments and uh, realize like how dignified and beautiful that part of life can be. I think a lot of people fear it, understandably, since no one can speak to the experience of dying. But yeah, basically that song, it switches between my perspective and her perspective and has a lot of religious references because she was a Baptist and played piano at the Baptist church. And yeah, it's very, uh, sometimes it's not easy to sing in concert. Like if my, if my dad's there, I feel really emotional when I sing that one. There's a real sense in terms of your lyrics and your songs of vulnerability. I feel like, and this is something that I feel is pretty intrinsic to the creative process itself. I feel like in order to create something that people will relate to, you have to put yourself in a vulnerable space. And I, I feel like it goes beyond just this song uh, in terms of you're talking about very specific things like in night shift whenever you say the first time I tasted someone else's spit I had a coughing fit was was that was that a real did that is that a, tr a true thing or? that happened okay so, yeah, yeah or at least it was like about the first person that I kissed after my five-year relationship so it wasn't like my first kiss ever but it was like that first kiss post being dedicated to someone for five years Wow. See, and that's what I'm talking about. Like you're, you're, you're bearing your soul in a way that, that is very interpersonal, you know, talking about uh, very specific things that have affected you emotionally. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, that vulnerability, that vulnerable state that you put yourself in whenever you're working yourself through the creative process? Yeah, I think that something that allows that to happen is that I don't write intending to show people things. I often write because I can't not write. Like it feels kind of like throwing up when you're like, Oh no, this is about to happen. I can't stop it. I just have to give into it. Um, and that's 
mostly stayed the same. Luckily, I was afraid that once I had an audience, I wouldn't be able to write without kind of like thousands of made up eyes on me. But yeah, I still write things that I don't show people and I'll write something and finish it and decide whether or not it's meant to be heard. And I think that it's really just like a personal practice of being honest with myself. And so it just so happens that sometimes I'm honest with everyone else and I'm proud of those moments. I think it's important to do and I've benefited from the honesty of other writers throughout my entire life. But yeah, I, I know that a lot of people have trouble with vulnerability and putting vulnerability in their art. And I don't know, I think it's just something that takes like willingness and practice and, you know, not needing to monetize it. I think that if you are willing to talk to yourself, that's the most powerful thing that you can do. Yeah, absolutely. I So many times when I write lyrics, I think that I'm writing about someone else. But then I, I take a step back a lot of times and I'll look at the lyrics and I'll be like, oh, actually, I, I think I'm this might be about me, <laughs> you know, and and, the per, and sometimes it can help me help me work things out in terms of how I, I might be feeling about an interpersonal relationship where, you know, I'm saying, you know, I, I thought that I had this this issue about how another person was acting. But then sometimes through writing a song, I can start to realize, well, perhaps it isn't them that's having the issue maybe maybe it's it's my perspective of the situation and can help provide reflection as to you know how how i can deal with it in the real world not just on pen and paper when i'm writing lyrics yeah and it's like a chain reaction where if you write a song and are able to use it in your personal life you become probably a better friend and interpersonally stronger and then you probably write even better material because you have a depth to your life that's revealing more to you at least I think that that has happened for me where it's like whenever I've you know shared what I've learned from writing I get to a deeper level with my relationships and my life's better for it so I recommend it (laughs) That's great. Uh, Lucy, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And we're going to be wrapping up here in a minute. But I I, I want to ask because I'm curious, obviously, COVID-19 has thrown such a huge wrench in everything music. And I don't know about you, but me personally, uh, being able to play music with with my my family and in particular being able to play music to a larger audience is, is part of what helps keep me sane. Now, obviously, you're, you're an artist that uh, is making their entire career centered around music. Uh, so, yeah, I, how has this whole whole thing been uh, affecting you on the flip? Are you, you getting through it okay? Yeah, I think that I'm really lucky that I had been saving up and that I'm able to survive right now. I mean, the music industry is really getting hurt, but even though it's the way that I make money, I I don't prioritize it over the people who are suffering, um, who aren't able to meet their basic needs. I feel like my mind is always towards them. And I, I don't really think about like, oh, when am I going to be able to play shows again? Because I have always felt lucky that I've been able to do that. And it makes more sense (laughs) that I'm not allowed to do it. um, Because I felt like I was like, there was some sort of bank error in my favor for 
all of my career so far, um, which I'm grateful for. But yeah, I, I think that music will persist on personal levels. The concerts will eventually happen. They just really can't, you know, and I understand that. And so I, it's rare that I feel really sad, but it does happen when it really sinks in how much I miss doing shows. Um, so musically, I'm, I'm feeling fine. As a musician, I'm feeling fine. As a person, I'm participating in the collective grief that everyone is and the, you know, horror and outrage of a racist injustice police state. Um, yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that yeah. to me should be taking up the brain space of most of the brain space of all of us of like how we can show up for each other and be of use. Um, so that, that's my main mission right now. And, uh, you know, I've been writing also, like it all, it's all happening at the same time. Um, but yeah, that's maybe straying a bit from your question, but that's the answer. Yeah, no, and, but it actually does get to an area that I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it, it slipped my mind for a moment that I, I saw that during the primaries, you were getting behind Bernie Sanders in a big way. And I realized that, you know, it's it's a personal decision for, for any musician. Luckily, you're not like some pop country artist where you have to have to concern yourself with whether or not, whether or not you're alienating an audience by getting behind uh, getting behind a political candidate. It's not like you're appealing to the NASCAR crowd or anything like that. But I'm curious. I am curious to to know your thoughts going into the fall about um, the the state of our nation. You know, I we have been really put through the ringer this this country and the world by COVID itself. But the reckoning that's taken place in the aftermath of uh, the George Floyd killing has been something that has been absolutely astounding and inspiring to watch but also aggravating because it feels like even though there's been thousands of people taking to the streets even in, in columbia missouri but still even in columbia there's like huge take a look at the stats and there's huge race, racial disparity in terms of uh who's getting pulled over and at the end of the day so i am curious to to get your thoughts about you know what 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 we should be focusing on and uh looking forward to and thinking about as we move into what is probably the uh, most important election of our lifetime yeah i guess i'll say before i talk that like i'm a 25 year old white lady that is financially able to take care of herself so i'm probably not even the most um Import, I definitely don't have the most important perspective, but I do think that like Angela Davis said it in a really um, understandable way when she said that Biden is more likely to respond to mass um, expression of desires. Like, I forget exactly what she said, but it was basically like Trump will not respond to protest, whereas Biden is more of a pushover um, or could be pushed, you know, where we would want him to go. You know, it's just, it's just a little bit more likely that we could create a more just world simply because he would listen. And he's not a good 
choice. <laughs> um, there is not a good choice of anyone that was running. Um, I was pro Bernie um, and still think he would have been the best option. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's what we've come to. And also we need to remember that the Supreme Court um, justices are chosen by the president or nominated by the president. And so, and a, a lot of them are gonna be kind of replaced soon. So I don't know, it's, it's bleak, but it's worth fighting for even the thing that <laughs> it's not what you want. It's, it's good to fight for something that's against what you couldn't possibly stand. Um, and that's about the best that we can do. Yeah. The, <laughs> ain't that the truth? It's always been, and unfortunately, hopefully not, but we'll, we'll probably always be the lesser of two evils. And if it's good enough for Noam Chomsky, I guess it's good enough for me, <laughs> you know? Well, Lucy, uh, I want to thank you for your time. I've had an absolute blast speaking with you. Uh, it really means a lot that you decided to do the show, and I look forward to the day when I can actually see you play a show. Me uh, too, man. <laughs> in the future. Uh, so thank you for joining us, Lucy Dacus, on the Big Money Music Hour. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you all for tuning in this week. I am completely out of time, but be sure to tune in over the next couple of weeks because our guests will include Nick Hexum from 311, Eric Early from Blitz and Trapper, and Grammy-nominated country artist Jamie O'Neill. So on behalf of KBIA and everyone at LV Creative, this is Colin Laveau, the Shameless Voice, signing off. The Big Money Music Hour, presented by Les Bourgeois Vineyards, is produced by LV Creative and KBIAFM, an NPR station broadcasting from Columbia, Missouri. The show is hosted, written, and edited by Colin Laveau. Theme song written by Pat Kay. Outro song written by Crypt Trip. Videographer is Matt Matlack of LV Creative, co-produced by Kyle Felling, Mike Dunn, and Alicia Laveau. For more Big Money Music Hour content, be sure to subscribe to the Big Money Music Hour podcast wherever you get your podcasts.